Okay, welcome back to DC EKG with Joe Brogan and Eric Euland. We once again are continuing our discussion with Brian Blaze, CEO and founder of Paragon Health, and one of the uh, brightest lights in the conservative healthcare movement. So, Brian, uh, you're not tough enough to go the whole to go more than <laughs> two and a half years or so, and you leave the Trump administration. You uh, abandon Virginia and their shutdown schools for the sunny climate of Florida, open schools that remember, of course, this is during the COVID shutdown when you had left and you're consulting. Uh, You found a new think tank called Paragon Health, uh, which we're going to get to in a a minute. But you've had a number of different op-eds posted in the Wall Street Journal since you've left the White House and since you founded Paragon, most recently on something called the family glitch. Now, when we were talking about how the Obama administration implemented the Affordable Care Act, you uh, alluded, not specific, you didn't make this direct accusation, but you alluded to politicization of the IRS and the Treasury Department. So let's talk about this op-ed that you had published in the Wall Street Journal on the family glitch. At what is the family glitch, and why does your face turn red when you think about the family <laughs> glitch and what the Biden administration? Uh, so let me start by saying I did I, I, I did leave the White House. Um, uh, it was uh, two and a half years that I served in that position, and as you know from both of you from serving in those positions, you're working round the clock, um, and most people in those positions don't last uh, don't last the entire term. I mean, credit to, to you both for serving as long as you did. Um, I loved the position in the White House, but when the executive order, uh, when we finished implementing the, all the elements of the executive order, you know, the, the, when we did the HRA rule, uh, I was the lead briefer that day for the president. He announced the HRA rule in a Rose Garden uh, ceremony. Uh, it was actually on his birthday, June 14th. Uh, I was in the front row next to cabinet secretaries. Uh, my parents and wife got to uh, attend that. It was really a great capstone. Um, to my time in the administration. And it was just, it was, I, I identified the right person to replace me. Um, and I was confident that he was going to be able to carry on the inner, uh, the sort of the, the tri-department uh, health policy process that, that we had initiated, Joe. And you were still there, and I had confidence in you um, and Eric, obviously. And it was time for me to, uh, to spend some more time focused on my family. Uh, what really has motivated uh, me in health policy is um, just enormous frustration with um, the status quo and how um, wasteful the system is and how there's a lot of entities out there that can get really rich um, from not serving patients and not serving taxpayers well and sort of just the, I mean, 50% of uh, healthcare spending flows through the government and just the inefficiencies involved uh, with with the government allocating resources, figuring out what the prices are going to be, uh, having all these sort of inefficient subsidies. It just is, it's maddening. And um, uh, it really just motivates me to try to expose uh, the problems with government health care programs. So uh, the family glitch is an issue that I had been aware of since my uh, days at the House Oversight Committee. Um, I guess probably his way of sort of brief background. 
Um, Obamacare contains all these subsidies for people to purchase uh, individual market coverage, but they're really expensive. So they had to craft a law and limit the availability of these subsidies. Otherwise, you know, the the U.S., the the law would have been totally, uh, I think the law was already fiscally irresponsible, but it would have just blown even larger holes um, in the uh, U.S. deficit. Um, So they limited these subsidies to people who didn't have an offer of uh, either government coverage like Medicare or Medicaid or didn't have an offer of an affordable employer plan. So what they needed to do was define affordable employer plan, and they defined it uh, with respect to self-only coverage. So what the worker would pay for their coverage if it exceeded about 10% of their income, uh, that was unaffordable and the worker could qualify for a, uh, a subsidy. Uh, but the law limited the availability of those subsidies um, uh, to dependents. So if the self-only coverage was affordable, even if um, family coverage might not have been less than 10% of premiums, um, those workers' dependents didn't have access to a premium tax credit. So some people call this the family glitch. Um, There are estimates that there are about 5 million people in the family glitch, although the vast majority of them, over 90% of them, do have coverage. There are dependents who are enrolled in a spouse's or a parent's um, uh, employer health plan. But glitch Um, implies that there was a mistake. You're saying that this was an intentional choice 12 years ago by the framers of this law, which has persisted ever since. Correct. So I call it the so-called family glitch for that exact reason. Um, So, uh, you know, the the, the Obamacare is clear. Um, Treasury and IRS do rulemaking around premium tax credits back in 2012 in the Obama administration. There's a lot of pressure on IRS and Treasury to ignore the law and have a more expansive uh, definition of affordability. But uh, they stay true to the law. They issue a, a regulation that um, you know, uh, uh, defines affordability based on self-only coverage, and that's the policy that has been in place um, for a decade. Um, this White House um, doesn't like that policy choice. I mean, progressives in general don't like this policy choice, and they have put enormous political pressure on the Internal Revenue Service to uh, come up with a different definition of um, affordability. I honestly didn't think, from working with the IRS folks, that they would be able to um, uh, convince IRS to change their position. I don't know how much pressure has been put on. I think part of the issue is there's been a turnover at IRS and some of the institutional um, staff there that would have not um, uh, cowed to this pressure um, have gone into different positions. But they proposed a rule, uh, uh, I guess, earlier this month that um, uh, violates the statute and that uh, would spend billions of dollars each year in subsidies beyond what um, is consistent with uh, the law that Congress passed. So just one thing on that. I mean, if you you look at the the way this rule popped out, this proposed rule, President Obama's visiting the White House. It's the first time he's been to the White House since he's left. Uh, The budget had just come out the week before. In the budget, they put in what regulations they think they're going to address and, and how they um, uh, might dr- address them. They don't necessarily go into a lot of detail. But this is not in the budget, the family glitch, which spends money. Uh, even if you agree that, uh, that it's the right policy, it, nobody disputes that it spends money. 
it's not in the budget. So having worked at OMB, which manages the budget process, I'm wondering if OMB had signed off on it either, certainly in that process. And then the Obama, uh, excuse me, the Biden administration, they need something to announce when Obama shows up. And they're like, let's, we got to hustle on the family glitch. And they put a lot of pressure on IRS and get this thing uh, punched out. It'll be interesting to see at some point some of these emails and meeting notes are going to come out, I think. But I, I would agree with you. Do you think this is going to be a there's this is going to be the subject of a lawsuit? So I do. So um, uh, so the process is there's a 60 day comment period, um, and I mean most of the comments are going to be supportive because they're going to be from industries and interest groups that want more government um, subsidies for healthcare. But I know there's going to be some comment letters uh, that uh, 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 tell the IRS this is inconsistent with the law. You might uh, know of one in particular, perhaps? <laughs> uh, I will definitely be making a comment letter. I mean, I already have the, the Wall Street Journal um, uh, piece on this. But I think it's, it is the IRS should not be uh, politicized. Like, they enforce the tax code. You cannot have a new uh, presidential administration coming in and saying, uh, we would like you to enforce the tax code in a way that meets our political interests. Like, think about the long-term like not collecting, negative Not collecting capital gains tax, for instance. The Republican administration might say, don't, don't uh, you know, give everybody a tax cut and just interpret the law differently than, than the plain reading says. Now, you, I, I don't want to out the individual, but you did tell a, a, just an interesting anecdote that a career employee had called you after your piece appeared in the Wall Street Journal and said what? Uh, said that I was spot on. So somebody working, a uh, civil servant within the uh, federal government gave you a call and said, you're, you're right about this. Yes. And, and some, uh, somebody who, you know, has experience working in that, in that policy process. And um, uh, uh, so I took that as uh, very encouraging. And uh, I really, Congress... Um, needs to investigate this. They need to get the documents and communications and figure out who in the White House was putting pressure on um, uh, IRS and Treasury officials and how this decision uh, got reversed. So the so this is great right now. So Biden administration is now moving regulations, irritating Brian Blaze. <laughs> you, as I've said, you you have founded a think tank about what a year after you left the White House. When did you get up and running? Um, two years. So in, in full disclosure, I'm on the board of, of this think tank. I will say this. The board is not always informed about what you're up to, Brian. Um, and Eric, you need to read your email, Joe, because I am Touché. informed. Touche. I, too, am a board member. That hasn't been said. Yeah, tell us a little bit about what motivated you to find found this and then what you're driving to with Paragon here over the next few years? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, health policy is the most important domestic policy priority. Like we're coming up to 20% of the economy. Um, government health care programs are unsustainable. They're the reason why we have such um, uh, huge budget deficits right now with the uh, baby boomers uh, aging uh, and health care costs continuing to rise, right? This is where the main source of uh, fiscal pressure on, on the federal uh, budget is. And uh, it's obviously crowding out family budgets, too. And we're not getting any healthier, right? American life expectancy. So we get Obamacare. We get all this new um, uh, federal spending. American life expectancy lower in 2019, six years after uh, Obamacare starts than it was in 2013. So we've got and all that's these, before COVID. Before hit. COVID. Before right. COVID. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Before yeah. COVID, it's obviously plunged even further um, uh, with respect to COVID. 
and um, uh, and the uh, conservative free market uh, libertarian side of the uh, sort of policy debate is just overwhelmed by uh, the left. So they just dev- on health policy, they just have more expertise. Um, uh, and I wanted to to counteract that. So to develop um, proposals, develop research, to be able to do critical evaluations of government programs, because it's not the intentions behind government programs that matter, right? And uh, many of these government programs have great intentions, but they don't work, right? They're inefficient. They, in some cases, actually are worsening our health. Um, We should do evaluations of how these government programs um, are failing um, and have a set of proposals to go that are consistent with our principles. Well, why didn't you go just to work for one of the establishment think tanks, the, the established uh, The ones that here. you've been at before and done yeah. such great work at. You were at Mercatus. You, there's the American Enterprise Institute. Heritage. Uh, Heritage Foundation. Grandfather. Uh, Cato. Uh, your phone must have been ringing off the hook when you left and people understood that all the great policy work that you had done you would have had other opportunities besides just Well, there's something attractive about being your own boss. Artfully. <laughs> Artfully done. <laughs> Joe, you're not familiar with that, are you? <laughs> so, so and, and, you know, those organizations, and they have great um, uh, folks that work on health policy, but they have a much broader set of issues, and I think we wanted to be uh, efficient and avoid a lot of the bureaucracy that comes with larger organizations so that we can uh, sort of cut through that. And, um, you know, one of my uh, work philosophies has been to uh, uh, not ask permission, but to ask forgiveness. And um, just be like really aggressive and active, and for the vast majority of the cases, that that has has worked out. So you you found the new tell tell people about Paragon. It's a, it's healthcare, but but what? I mean, one thing that's a little bit different is you're in Florida, <clears throat> and you've got thinkers uh, from the right in healthcare policy all over the country. So this is maybe something that wouldn't have been able to be set up. You might have had more skepticism pre-COVID before everybody moved to Zoom. But what makes it different? What's your defining philosophy? What what animates Paragon? What, what are you up to? So it's really the, uh, the people that we have in the leadership um, uh, positions at Paragon and uh, the advisors that we have for Paragon are individuals that have deep policy expertise. <coughs> but have also served in government and know how the process works and know how to implement change. So you know, I have Paragon um, organized into, at the federal level, four initiatives, uh, and then we've got a state health reform project as well. Um, but each of our initiative directors has experience, significant experience in their policy area. So just to take one, I mean, our, our friend Demetrius Kazukas, he ran the Medicare program for all four years of the Trump administration. You know, he served in HHS in the general counsel office in the Bush administration. He understands Medicare policy at a very deep level. He is, um, you know, uh, very principled in his approach to health policy, but he also knows the bureaucracy and how the bureaucracy works and how to move reform through the bureaucracy. So we've got folks like Demetrius who are helping sort of to craft a policy agenda that is going to be practical, that is uh, going to be able to be implemented. 
um, because we need to start winning um, battles at the margin um, instead of uh, uh, always playing defense. Uh, We need to, uh, you know, think we we aspirationally, we know where we want to go, but what are the steps uh, and what are the reforms we're going to make in order to get there? So to focus at obviously at the at the high level on uh, where we want the healthcare system to go, but also where we have policies and regulations where we're ready to move. So ultimately, a game plan, a playbook for when Republicans recapture the White House and are running the administration again. Are you doing that same sort of playbook work on the state level for the state initiative too? Yeah, and, and we're obviously nonpartisan. So if Democrats want to adopt some of our proposals, like you know building on the HRA rule, uh, we'd welcome uh, working with Democrats as well on ways to uh, increase choice and competition. Um, Phone ringing off the hook from Democrats yet? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Uh, there is, hope springs eternal, huh? Yes. Um, and it, yeah, at the state level, um, you know, they're uh, given the challenges at the federal level, I think, right now, Eric, and also the importance of uh, states in health policy. Um, uh, our first product was a state health reform book titled Don't Wait for Washington, How States Can Reform Healthcare Today. And it's got a set of policies that states can implement to expand um, coverage options um, and to sort of better enable uh, providers, uh, doctors, nurses uh, to best meet patient needs. Great. Look, I think one of the most uh, salutary lessons of the first Trump administration in health policy truly was breaking this idea that the fight should only be about coverage, that it really needs to be about care, quality of care, expanding access, growing options, and giving patients and families the ability to make choices inside a framework that allowed for support for them when it came to their healthcare challenges. And that's something that hopefully won't have been lost, courtesy of Paragon and others, by the time Republicans are back in charge of the executive branch and or running Congress here as early as next year. So before we wrap up, one last question, Brian. You're generally an optimistic person. You've been in tough <laughs> spots before. Uh, are you optimistic about the direction of healthcare care policy? Uh, you, earlier in the conversation, you made a reference to the Medicare trust fund, which is going to start to be insolvent in a couple years. How long do you think it'll take before uh, we start to see real change in health care in the direction that you, you want to take it. You may think there's there's certainly reasons to be optimistic, right? There's a lot. The American ingenuity is still there. And, um, you know, the development of the vaccines um, in sort of record time was a great credit to sort of the public-private partnership um, that, you know, happened in 2020. Um, and we've got, you know, innovative products, uh, in, innovative medications uh, coming on that uh, that really improve Americans' health. I think there's reasons to be pessimistic, too. I mean, uh, the fact that our life expectancy uh, has been declining uh, prior to COVID is, uh, you know, raises alarms. Um, the fact that these government programs just keep getting bigger uh, with more enrollees. You know, we've got now almost one in four Americans on Medicaid. Uh, Medicaid is supposed to be a welfare program uh, for vulnerable uh, uh, individuals in our society to have uh, 25% of Americans on Medicaid um, and all the sort of uh, uh, perversities that, and distortions that come out of that is, is a real problem. And so over, over half the births in the United States are to uh, – are, are It's close to a Medicaid. half, yeah. 
Yeah. So it's um. Uh, so I think there's you know there's reasons to be concerned too. Um, and most of the concern, in my view, is because government programs uh, and government policies are failing, and we need um, to reverse those you know uh, those those bad incentives that those programs have created. Well, great. Thanks so much for the uh, opportunity to quiz you, Brian. It's always good to see you, Eric. Thank you. Thank and you. We look Joe. forward thank to having you, you back, Brian. Anytime.